0: We talked about and sang about binding us together in love, yet it's so interesting that what many of us charismatics seem to want to chase after the most, some unbelievers managed to do it, and it still isn't enough to get them into heaven. Do I have your attention this evening? But it is interesting that in John 13, 35, Scripture says, Jesus says, by everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? So the one thing you really can't fake is what? Love. And it's fascinating that in all of Scripture, so much of the New Testament and the epistles and Paul's writings and a lot of the things that he draws our attentions to, you're hard-pressed in much of it, to go very far without reading Paul's admonition to step into and to mature and to grow in our love. And so even coming into these Wednesday nights and talking about emotional intelligence, the first couple of weeks we spoke a lot about emotional intelligence But then we jumped over into 1 Corinthians 13, and we talked about how really stepping into love and the greatest expression of love will raise your emotional intelligence as a byproduct to that. So while I think it's beneficial to talk about emotional intelligence, especially in in quantifying it and helping us to, in our relationships, understand how to measure how healthy we are relationally and how to have healthy relationships, if I pursue love, I really will get emotional intelligence as a byproduct. And then also, last week we started talking about conflict resolution, and the biggest part of that is understanding that in the kingdom way, conflict resolution really is a non-negotiable, just like forgiveness is. So forgiveness really isn't optional. And we even asked the question, another awkward question last week, Are there some sacrifices or are there some offerings and some gifts that God can't receive? And the answer to that is yes, because when our heart isn't postured the right way and it's in unforgiveness, we are admonished to lay our gift and leave it at the altar until we've made it right, which presupposes that anything that we would offer in that state wouldn't be accepted. Uh, James, I believe, talks about um, our prayers being hindered. And so in all of these situations, we realize that the greatest pursuit that you and I are called to above anything else, and I would submit to you tonight that the greatest measure of your fire is the degree to which you honestly and authentically love the body. So I'm not dissing, and I'm not trying to diminish anything else other than that, but what I'm saying is when Scripture spends so much time pointing our attention to it, why does it seem a little less anticlimactic or a little less than a pursuit of doing things that make us feel emotionally on fire? So my point is, I don't have to diminish one to raise the other, but what I do have to realize is that we are called to love the body. Yeah. Like I, I, I look out and I wonder to myself, every time I walk in this building Sunday morning, what would it look like if every single person in this building walked up to somebody else in the room and said, hey brother or sister, who are you? Let's go to lunch. I want to I I speak Jesus into your life. I want to make an investment into who you are. And I'm not talking about Starbucks social club. I'm talking about doing life and and having the kind of life that outwardly and practically loves the people you go to church with. Can I just ask you, how could could God not send revival to that? What, What if we don't have revival, but because we don't have the love quotient right? I mean we look at it and we say well we want to move of God God did strange and unusual things he did all these things in scripture yet the parts that we gloss over were they had all things in common because such a love came into their heart that they began to focus on the word grew strong and all these different things started happening Acts 242 they met listened to the apostles teaching broke bread together but in all of that what, what took place was a new posture in their heart that, that authentically wanted to love one another. Even in one of his letters to the church, Jesus talks about leaving our first love. And so tonight, you could really say as we wind up conflict resolution that the key to all conflict resolution really is a simple thing. We are called to love. How could we not resolve conflicts, when our heart truly is postured to love someone else, at least the way I love myself, but really the greatest part of that is to consider others better than myself and to love them that way. And so when we look at conflict resolution tonight, what we're really saying under the, under the foundation of 1 Corinthians 13 is that my heart should always be postured toward love, and love always postures me to resolve my conflicts. You with me? Now, this it's Wednesday night. I don't want to get too deep, but what I'm trying to say is what I want to challenge us to is that if we can walk away from here really purposing in our hearts to love one another and to allow love to be perfected in us, love is practical. You can't say I love someone and it doesn't do something to express itself to other people. And so whether I'm at Walmart praying for the sick or whether I'm anywhere, what we want to do is to learn to love the body, to learn everybody else. And it's interesting that when we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, we are admonished by Paul to pursue love but to desire spiritual gifts. Could it be that when the love quotient really is right, that as the byproduct, we get the manifestations of the Holy Spirit? Because how could they not manifest when you truly love? I mean, how many times did you see in Jesus, he was moved in his bowels. He was moved with compassion. And so these things in our lives start to work themselves out in a way that many times, what we're pursuing as the main thing, we get... As a side thing, when we get the main thing the right way. I mean, it has to be really important that so much of Scripture has been devoted to it. So, what I would like to challenge us into tonight, I want to talk about a few uh, practicals on conflict resolution. But what I'm really trying to challenge us into more than anything else, if, if you could walk away knowing and really, if I, could, if I could just give you two main thoughts that it'll be worth it these last four weeks, is if one, you stop being an avoider. I mean, if, if we stop avoiding and living that awkward situation where everybody knows something's wrong but nobody wants to talk about it, then uh, that's a win. And then number two, if we can really get to the place where we are really lo- willing to love one another, where we work through our differences and stop settling for anything less than that. And so what I'm going to challenge us into tonight and give us a couple of just practicals on conflict resolution is that you and I, the greatest exquisite form of sanctification that happens in your life comes through the people that annoy you. The desert fathers had it easy, a little too easy, because they thought, "Man, we're going to run and go hide out in the desert because people are just, mm, you know, I'm done with people." So they had all these great revelations, but what they weren't getting is that rubbing up of it, the people that sitting next to you that for whatever reason, you just don't like them because. There's not even a good reason. (laughs) But what I'm saying is God's most exquisite form of maturity in our lives happens when we intentionally learn and purpose in our heart to aggressively and authentically really love God's people. Um, I can tell you in my own life, I've had situations where People have wounded me and hurt me. And in the process of that, I'm talking to God and whining to him about one of his kids only for him to remind me that somebody somewhere in several places felt the same thing about me and were having to get free of what I did to them. And sometimes it wasn't even by wrong motives. Sometimes I, I, I shared an illustration last week where I got, got drawn into an oath I never should have made, essentially, where I was bound to secrecy. Well, when I betrayed that friend uh, and, 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 and exposed the sin to the, per, the person that we were living with, that deeply wounded him. And he was probably the one praying for me, trying to get free in his heart for something that I had done to him. And so my point in saying that is the greatest growth we experience in our life isn't necessarily what's happening in your prayer closet. It's happening when you're, when you're rubbing shoulders with the people next to you and you're learning to love them through their imperfection because love is patient, love is kind, love believes the best, love believes all things, love doesn't rejoice in injustice and all those things and we begin to get a revelation of Jesus because you're getting a revelation of love. You with me? And so I'm just saying that, that our pursuit, I mean, if all of the commandments are wrapped up in love, that if we learn how to love, we essentially are keeping all of the law. And if the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, and the second one is to love our neighbor as ourselves, love's a really important thing. And it must mean that there are mysteries in God that I can only discover through love. All right, so having said that, what I feel like we want to continue to encourage everyone into in this room is love teaches me how to confront, but it never tells me not to. And we said last week and weeks before this that the word confrontation comes from the French word that literally means face to face. And I'm continuing to use that word because I want to kind of take it back and I want to redefine it as something that's not negative and highly emotionally volatile. I want it to just simply mean what the root of it says. I'm willing to come face-to-face with you and I'm willing to love you enough to correct you when you need it and to receive correction when I need it. So let me just say this, that you in the world can understand that there really are five basic styles or approaches to resolving conflict. But I'm going to tell you that what i found, and I've done quite a bit of mediation in my life, both with individuals and uh, and organizations, and generally I find that what is driving the conflicts emotionally is most often relegated to something that you don't readily see always, and that is this, that usually what drives the conflict and fuels it the most is a lack of trust. Somewhere along the way, trust has been severed, and all of the relational negative emotional energy that comes from that can't really be resolved, and the conflict can't really be resolved until I understand what really is pushing the conflict, and I learn how to address that. So spending four or five hours sitting down, hashing out everything in the past, really is going to be futile and does nothing. And that's why love keeps no record of wrongs, because the record isn't going to solve the problem, right? Right? Right. So what is going to solve that problem is understanding what possibly the record created, and that's the breach in trust. So what I normally do, in, in most situations, if I'm either brought into something like that, the first thing I'm going to start asking, is there a breach of trust, and why is that? And so what that allows us to do is it allows us to come to a place where we don't have to swim in the sea of records of wrongs, and we only have to address, what we specifically believe is causing the mistrust and go there. And even in that, it's not a a, a matter of debating or trying to get through who's right and who's wrong. It's about understanding why there is that breach and then being willing to seal the breach or to repair it. So So understand that at whatever level you're experiencing conflict in your life, Even at the personal level because again we all are going to have conflicts because that is the nature of being human it's not if it's when I I would guarantee that if I ask you to raise your hand every single person in this room would say I have at least one conflict going on in my life right now so the question then is there's a lot of situations that may be driving and at the forefront of that but if you don't understand what those situations have really done, most often it being a breach of trust, then you're never really gonna be able to come to a a resolution to the problem. So let me ask you this tonight. I want you to think of, really quickly, the most prevalent, you probably already beat me to it, but what is the conflict that's on your mind right now? Who is that with? Take a few minutes and say, man, I've got a breach in a relationship somewhere and it's a conflict that I really want to resolve in my heart. You got it? Now I want to ask yourself, is the reason or the result of that conflict a lack of trust? Is the real problem in this relationship is, is there a mistrust? Because I can do all the talking in the world, but if I'm not willing to come to the table of resolution and own the mistrust and be willing To fix and seal the breach, it's a waste of time. So inevitably, in any time you're going to have a conflict, I'm going to ask, where is the mistrust, how do we get there, and what do we need to do to fix that? And if I can point people to that, then most of the time we can work through any issue because the issue is really more than anything else, they don't trust you and they're mad about it or hurt about it. And some of the greatest pain and mistrust comes because you want to trust someone, but they simply don't have the behavior that allows you to give them that. All right, so five different responses on 2.3 on page five. I'm gonna actually start with number five. So going all the way up from the bottom to the top, number five on that list is avoidance. It is an authentic, conflict resolution strategy but it's the bottom because it is the only one of these strategies that has no potential whatsoever to resolve the conflict so when you result to avoidance you're simply saying that i don't believe this conflict can be resolved and i'm willing to let the relationship go and the situation go So when we look at avoiding, really the goal in in the strategic use of that is it's to delay and it's often to stall or it's simply to tolerate or ignore. How many situations have you ever heard where there was abuse in the childhood by one family member and everybody else just simply act like it never happened? See, so do you understand why avoidance is devastating and really destructive in some situations because an injustice has been committed and you are partnering with that through your avoidance? So I'm not saying that to be mean and to be, and to be negative toward everybody. I'm trying to wake us up and say avoidance is really only accurate and appropriate in the smallest of circumstances. We simply don't want to avoid Well, I love that person, and I don't want to hurt their feelings. No, you don't. You love yourself more, and you love the way you feel more. And so really, the reason why I'm not willing to say something has nothing to do with them. It's that I don't want them to reject me, and I don't want to lose the friendship, so I'm willing to allow you to live in a lie. Come on, somebody. We're preaching now. So what I want to say about this is, avoidance is really about withdrawing from the conflict altogether. And what you're really doing is, is you're saying, I'm willing to live with no resolution. And you will usually only do that at the cost of the relationship. So understand when you avoid what you're really saying is this relationship isn't important enough for me to try to work through it, put it out on the table, and try to come to some kind of conflict. Now, there are situations where that's, it's, it's true. You're going to have to have it. But it's going to be the thing that I would resort to the last. And ironically, it is the thing that most people resort to first. All right? Number two, or number four rather, is controlling and this is where again uh, control is a dirty word in most situations and it really is still a dirty word here it's when someone in authority steps in and says this isn't resolvable and to keep you from stabbing each other we're saying that we're putting the restraining order on you and you can't be within like 10 feet of each other someone takes control of the situation and says this is what's going to happen an employer will do that if you can't manage to Find resolution, they'll, they'll implement some kind of control that's meant to control your behavior and keeping you from, uh, from creating destruction. But again, control really isn't a resolution, it's behavior modification. And again, there are times and that's necessary. You go to that side, that corner, and you go put your nose in that corner. So we're controlling the situation. Now kiss and make up, but nobody really believes they really are. Well, sometimes they do. But what I'm saying is control, we do that at the expense of violating other people's wills. And so when we exercise control, understanding that we are imposing something on other people, and then in order to control, you will sacrifice your relationship to do it. The moment I step in and I control you through a situation, and again, there are times when that's necessary. I'm not saying that this is totally illegitimate. I'm saying it's at the bottom of the list because you do so. It's an expensive resolution strategy because what you're going to spend to get it is a relationship because you can't control another person without them resenting you. Again, this is another form of even in our interpersonal dynamics and I could spend probably a month just talking about control Because control is a really powerful mechanism that at its heart is both subversive and subversive. It's both outward and it's both inward. It's both active and it's both passive How many of you have sat down and you talked to that person and maybe you're trying to confront them and you are really working hard to get them to see something, and they're ultra-agreeable. They're agreeing with every single thing you say. They're nodding. That is a form of control. So when you realize that when they're ultra-agreeable about everything and they don't need to necessarily defend, what they're really doing is deflecting away from the situation. So again... Control isn't always the spirit of Jezebel manifesting through your mother or your husband or whoever else. Which, by the way, if it manifests through a man, we call those Jezebel. <laughs> so controlling four and five, I would avoid and not result to under the most unless it's the most dire situation. What I would do with four. Is the moment I come into conflict resolution, I would immediately ask myself, have I been controlling? And the examined life will help us to ask ourselves that many times it is within our nature to want to control. And sometimes what causes the greatest conflicts in people is that we have been controlling. And they're starting to resent it enough to blow up and start raising the issue with us. So again, love doesn't control. Control is the substitute to love. The next up on the list is accommodation, and this one happens very frequently. And when it does, um, what this is, is when we are agreeing to yield and we're forgoing, we are willing to lose in order to let the other person win. And this can be strategic, and it can be a valid response if you are mature enough in your love to accommodate but not resent it. There are sometimes in situations and conflicts where I have been willing to accommodate the other person or defer to them and lose in the process because I love them and I want them to grow through it. And the only time I will do that is when accommodating doesn't leave me tolerating. Good. So again, toleration in the in the way that we're defining it is recognizing that something is wrong and leaving that unchallenged. So what we want to do in accommodation is realizing that the strategy means that I'm going to yield and I'm going to and I'm going to willfully lose so that you can win. And most of the time, what we're really doing in a lot of situations is we aren't really accommodating at all. We're just afraid, so we're tolerating. Somebody said, well, how do you know when you do that? How do you, how do you know when you should overlook? Because that's essentially what, you know, love covers sin, right? A multitude of sins. So at what point do we cover? How do we know? Because we should pick our battles, right? So at what point should we not jump into this battle and at what point should we be willing to overlook faults and all that kind of stuff? Well, there's a couple of things I would say, and this is what I do personally, so I'm going to give you the practicals. The moment I'm tempted, the, the moment that I am tempted to accommodate or tolerate, I'm going to ask myself one, first, first question, I'm going to ask myself three questions. One, what am I afraid of? Because in answering that question, if I'm afraid and there's fear attached to it, then I'm tolerating. Because it's more about me and me not feeling rejected or me not, you know, something negative happening to me, and therefore out of that fear, I'm willing, I'm probably needing to do something I should do, but I'm afraid to do it. So I ask if I'm afraid, then number two, I ask what I'm afraid of. So one, sorry I messed that up, one is am I afraid? Is it fear that's driving me to want to overlook? And then I recall that perfect love casts out all fear. So fear is something to be cast out, not not lived with. So the presence of fear in my life automatically tells me I'm in the wrong place, unless it's the fear of the Lord, right? Perfect love, sound mind, right? Right? And so understanding that in the presence of fear is the absence of love, and the presence of love casts out fear. Yeah. And so understand what is motivated by fear in my life is not going to produce the righteous thing that God says he wants to produce because fear has nothing within it to produce that. So we should constantly be asking ourselves, what am I afraid of? Because if my next thing is motivated by fear, I'm out of order. Right? That's how I know I'm tolerating. So the next thing is, if am I afraid? If the answer is yes, number two, what am I afraid of? And number three is the big one. This is how you really get codependent relationships in church and with leaders. This is how it happens with spouses and everybody else. It's because you want something bad enough that you're willing to put up with all the junk to get it. So you got people wanting to go into ministry and so they hang around unhealthy leaders and they're willing to take the unhealthiness because they want to be put into ministry and so they're willing to take a lot of the junk they're willing to overlook some of the unhealthy unbiblical practices that some of these guys do and then and then what they're really saying is what i want bad enough this person's going to give to me and i'm willing to overlook their stuff in order to get it so the definition of codependence is when I think what I'm getting is worth all the bad that I'm getting, right? And so what I'm asking myself is, if the reason why I don't want to confront, the reason why I'm tolerating, the reason why I am uh, really willing to accommodate, if the reason for that is because I want something from that person, and if I believe I'm going to confront them, I won't get it, my motive is wrong. And so again, what we have to realize is that we want others to judge us by our intent while we, in fact, judge others by their actions. And so what we have to understand is we have to learn to judge ourselves and judge our heart and weigh our heart and be honest with what's moving in our heart so that we produce the right kind of actions because the wrong action with the right motive is still what? The wrong action. Doesn't matter why you did it, right? So now to us anyway, now to God it does because he does judge the heart, right? But you and I can't always make those judgments. And so why I'm saying accommodation is a good thing in as much as my motives are pure, it can be a good thing. And what I don't want to do though is I don't want to use accommodation as an excuse to jump up into collaboration or to compromise, which are the next top two. So again, the moment you want to accommodate someone else, understand that if my motive is impure in that, I might just be in my accommodation, partnering with something that's demonic. I'm only saying that because if on the other end of that, out of my fear, I'm willing to confront, or I'm not, especially when it comes down to sin, because again, remember in Matthew, If your brother sins against you, go to him. So it's really not always about you hurt my feelings and I want to talk about it. It's that your brother has sinned and if you don't help correct him in the sin, on some level he's partnering not with God, right? So what we want to do is love our brother enough to correct our brother or our sister in that And it's really not about helping them to understand where they hurt you as much as it is about helping them to understand where they're in error and out of order. Um, My hurt, I don't really, I very rarely ever go to anyone and say you hurt my feelings because I don't need to tell you that. I go deal with that with the Lord and he gets my heart free. I I mean, I I don't need you to say that, uh, you know, you're sorry or anything like that. That's not a requirement for for me to forgive most of the time. On on most situations I will have already worked it through in my heart and I've already forgiven and when I'm coming to you to talk about something I'm coming because I love you enough because what I really want is the best for your life and I'm believing the best about you that you're not wicked and really want to intentionally hurt me that sometimes we just mess up all of us do and we need to repent and say we're sorry and love people through it and be loved through that that's why love covers there's a time when all of us need to be covered by love right and so, next up on that list is compromise, and this is still a good one as well. And this is, a, this is a legitimate one that most often is gonna be used the most when collaboration, number one, fails. So let's talk about compromise. The goal is finding the middle ground and foregoing some of your concerns to have others met. In other words, I'm willing to get some wins on what I want and I'm willing to lose in other areas. So that means that in order to compromise, what I'm really trying to do is I am really trying to partially satisfy everyone and I'm gonna use this when it's moderately important but not really worth the time and the energy to collaborate. Sometimes what I'm doing is strategic And what I want out of the deal isn't near as important as the win the other person gets. And that's deferring to the other person. So when I compromise, we're not talking about sin and tolerating. There are many times when I go, yeah, this is going to be a big win for the other person. I'm willing to not get some of what I want because, man, they're going to get a big win here. This is good. And so in that situation, I'm deferring to the other person and I'm willing to compromise even if I have to lose a little bit to get that. So what you're really talking about in compromise is you're really starting to understand that sometimes what I wanted is based on my own perception of reality. And when I sit down at the table and I start working through conflict, I start to entertain another perception that starts to challenge my own, and I realize that what I originally wanted isn't realistic, and so now that I've entertained the other side of the story, I can see a little bit better why I should be yielding and bend. That makes sense? And so in the process of that, I want to, what I want to do is we're each gonna get a mini win and a mini lose. All of us are gonna lose, and all of us are gonna win relationally. And you're gonna find often, that people who are matured in love don't have to win at all to feel like they won. You hear what I said there? People who are maturing in love can take the smaller wins and walk away satisfied, especially, or they can stomach the loses, especially if they realize that on the other side they got some really good wins. And why would I do that? Because I love my brother or my sister on the other side. The problem with conflict in general and why they don't get resolved is really comes down to one thing, mostly. It's that I want to be right and I'm going to be right and it's really not about resolving things. It's about getting you to acknowledge I'm right and in order for you to do that, you have to lose. So again, we, we found out in Matthew what the goal of conflict resolution wasn't showing you where you're wrong, Jordan, and where I'm always right. It was to resolve through the conflict so that I could be restored to my brother. So really the goal of conflict resolution or the resolution is always restoration. Restoration. Because the goal is, I don't have to be right, I have to be restored. And so when we can start to making as a goal, make it as a goal that what we want to do, especially in our relationships with other people, is live restored with everyone. And the moment we are out of restoration or out of alignment or out of order, the conflict resolution exists to restore the relationship not to restore my place of rightness in your life, right? So that's compromise. The ultimate, and I believe that we can come here most every single time if we're all really willing to understand that the best conflict resolution is collaborative. It means everyone is win-win, and this is why it's the hardest to get here, because collaboration takes a really high level of emotional intelligence to work through it, And really, what we're saying is collaboration really takes a set of maturity in your love quotient that allows you to be able to sit down and converse with the other side of the table, not talk at it. So, again, if what I want, if my idea of conflict resolution in the resolution is for you to tell me where I'm, for me to admit where I'm wrong and where you're right, that's really not a resolution. But if I can sit down and collaborate, and what collaboration really means, if I can just give you maybe a simple way to define it in this context, collaboration in this context is really coming to the table and willing to see what you're not really willing to see. It's about coming and willing, being willing to understand the person you're in conflict with in a way that you don't currently understand them. Collaboration is about doing more listening than you do talking and so the first rule of conflict resolution and i shared this earlier this week there are basically several golden rules and the first one is that i should be willing to understand before i'm understood the reason why conflict is so emotional and powerful is that you've got two people, and the clash really isn't about the conflict itself at all. It's the clash of making you and forcing you to see it my way. I'm going to work as hard as I can and force you to see and acknowledge what I'm saying, and the other side's doing that. And so that's take and give. It's arguing. It's debating. It's it's defending. It's a series of making get, getting in those jabs, really going hard at it, because what I really want is I want the person to see it my way, and I want to do that at the expense of me understanding their way. And so the way that you start conflict resolution every single time is you start bringing the parties together, or you do this yourself, and you say, brother or sister, it's obvious you and I have an issue. Help me understand this issue from your perspective. I'm willing to listen. I'm going to ask you questions about that, and when you're done talking, I'm going to reflectively communicate back to you what I believe you've said, just to make sure that I'm hearing what you're saying the way you want me to hear it. They say, well, you can't control how people hear what you say. It's largely true. I can't make you understand anything the way I want you to see it, but what I can do is check your understanding to see if you are, and that's what good communicators do. And so, if, if, if uh, I'm in a conversation with someone and I'm laying down some truth, I'm not going to rattle on for 30 minutes without taking a breath, and I'm, without pauses, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk in short spurts, one or two concepts at a time, and then I'm going to stop. Now, I'm going to say, now, can you communicate back to me what I just said? Because I want to understand if you understand the way I'm saying it. And I don't let the conversations go too far. And so that golden rule of conflict resolution is to understand that love listens. That's the dramatic pause to let that sink in because that was really good. Like I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like you guys really ought to chew on that a little bit now. <laughs> so but love does listen. When I'm unwilling to listen, my love quotient's low. Now, I'm going to own something here. I told this twice already this week. But I'm, I'm hanging out with God at around 5.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. I woke up. I'm chewing on something really cool that the Lord woke me up about. And I'm, t- I'm thinking about that. I'm doing a little research on my computer. And my good friend, Miss Kim Weir over here, comes into the room and has a whole conversation with me that I never even heard. I was so focused on what I was doing, she's sitting there talking to me and I didn't even know she was in the room. Now how many of us do that when we're looking somebody straight in the face and we're listening and nodding and repeating the last four or five words they just said and we haven't even listened to a thing they said? I'm pro at it. If you need tips, let me help you out. I used to be pro. You'd be be nice over there. All right, so, but what I'm trying to say is, is that um, that's an example, you know, if I'd have known she was in the room, I'd like to say, well, I would stop what I'm doing and I would listen to you. But nope, there was another situation where she walked in the room and started talking to me and I was all in my monitors uh, doing something. And um, I'm looking at the monitors going, yes, uh-huh, and she goes, uh, no, uh, you're not really ready to listen, you're not in the mood, I'll come back later. I'm like, oh, no, 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 I am, just keep talking. And I repeated back what she said, and meanwhile, I'm still looking in the monitor, I'm reading, and, and oh, no, 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 you're not, you know. And so, what I was really saying is, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, my mouth wasn't reflecting what was really going on in my heart, because if I were really interested in what she had to say, I would stop what I'm doing, take a look at her uh, eye to eye, and I would actually listen to what she had to say. Now, I finally did that, but only after it got a little awkward in the conversation because I wasn't listening. See, I'm humble. I can own my, my stuff. And she didn't tolerate it because she, she actually said, I'm going to come back because you ain't listening. <laughs> now, my wife will always prove to you that I'm an expert pro-listener. And I always tell the truth. So what I'm trying to say with a little bit of humor is that the way forward in conflict resolution isn't really hinged upon how much talking you do, it's about how much listening you're willing to do. And in that listening, and I don't have time to really go into it tonight, but uh, we started active listening today with the, with the Maranatha students, and what you're gonna find out is we hear with the ear but we listen with the heart. And it's entirely possible for you to hear here and never listen here, and so if you don't engage the heart, you're not really listening. And so they say the eyes are the gateway to soul. I don't know who said that really, but. But what I would say this is that our eyes are a good gauge of whether or not you're listening. And making eye contact with you in a conflict resolution scenario says more about what you're saying and what you really believe than actually what's coming out of your mouth a lot of the time. And so what we want to do is we want to learn to listen because love listens and love means that I really will, am willing to see it your way and I'm willing to entertain the notion that I'm wrong somewhere in this process and I love God enough and I love you enough to be willing to hear it to the point where I can evaluate that and own it, especially in order to resolve the conflict, right? And so understanding that the greatest skill that we need is really the greatest skill or, the, or is the skill that most of us are losing exponentially every year that goes by? Do you realize that listening in general, our capacity to listen is diminishing a lot? And that's due to a lot of different reasons, but we just aren't good listeners. Most of us aren't. And we have to focus in on learning how to listen. You know how you don't listen? Listen is when in a situation you're having a conversation and the other person loops back around and says the same thing five different times. Um, In one situation, I had a friend of mine that said, he had to finally stop me, he said, Derek, I'm gonna help you out here. No matter how many times you rephrase the same question, my answer's gonna be the same, so start listening. And I said, well, no, friend, it's not that I'm not listening it's just that I don't like your answer (laughs) so collaboration is really about fully satisfying all sides of the conflict for an optimal solution it's when both sides are willing to listen they're willing to entertain and listen from the heart not hear from the ears I'm talking about at the heart and I'm willing to start to see your perspective And I'm willing to entertain that my world isn't the right thing all the time. And that many times, and you learn this in listening class, that how we hear often comes through a set of filters we're not even aware of. That you hear and perceive through a set of filters that are often given to you by your culture, your upbringing, a lot of these things we hear and listen at a certain way And many times it passes through a filter that makes it sometimes more delusional than it does accurate. That's why the level of your damage in your life sets the level of the delusion in your life. That's why you can't entertain damage in your soul without being delusional at some level. So understand delusion is not being able to see reality. It's when you're willing and do believe something that's not accurate. You're believing a lie over the truth, not knowing that it's a lie. You actually believe it's true. That's why love has to be the only filter we look through. You see what I'm saying? And so let me me wind up with this, that there's a lot in these notes. So I would encourage you to... Really read through them and um, take some time and kind of ponder through these notes. But what I want to um, just take the last few minutes to encourage you guys with is that conflict resolution oftentimes or conflict itself really comes down to understanding one thing and it's how I feel about conflict in general. And if I can get you, everyone in this room tonight, to change your thinking about conflict, then you can start to understand conflict not as something that brings you pain that you want to avoid, but conflict is something that can become the basis for a strengthening in relationships that you could never get without it. It's not the fact that you made a mistake that's the problem. It's the fact that we don't handle the mistake the right way. All of us make mistakes. I can't judge you for a mistake that you've made. I can't can't hold that against you because love keeps no record of wrongs, and love doesn't want to keep a record. But what I can do is realize that whatever the place of conflict is, and most of the time, and I'm going to say I know what the percentage was, but I've forgotten It's a really high percentage of conflict that's largely fueled out of misperception. That when I come together and I start to understand, inevitably, when I've sat down either trying to resolve my own conflicts or I've served as a mediator in others, there has never been a time when we haven't come down to work through it where people have figured out that they simply didn't understand something the right way, or they only saw it through one lens, and that lens was their own perspective, and they didn't see it, and nor did they ever ask the question, how did the other person feel about that? You may say, well, our emotions lie, and our feelings are, often aren't true, and that is true, but again, perception is perception, Right? And so the first thing that we have to do is start to understand and be willing to entertain the other person's perception. I was in a really heated, long-term kind of negative situation with a family member. And what I began to realize somewhere through it is in a lot of the ways I was right and felt justified in a lot of the ways that I was talking to this person because I was aggravated and so what I found myself doing in the situation is becoming a very good debater and learning how to win the argument. What I didn't do is, because I felt like she was so totally wrong, what I didn't stop to think about is how I was impacting her, even though in a lot of the situations I was right. So I believed. But what I'm trying to say is, had I taken the time to understand that, while she may be wrong, I'm adding to the confusion because of the emotional negative energy I'm bringing to it, and I'm only complicating the problem, and then I'm blaming her for it. So what you have to understand in conflict resolution is that love puts the goal, the right goal, every single time, and love always puts me into restoration, not winning an argument. All right, so I'm going to close there because it's 8 o'clock, and we'll take a few questions if you guys have any. But how many of you learned something tonight? So I would encourage you to look over these notes, and I'm going to ask you to do something tonight. Because we can't just be hearers. We've got to let the Word and what we talked about be a mirror that we look into. And I want to challenge you tonight to ask yourself that one conflict that's prevalent in your life, I want to ask you to let the Holy Spirit put a conviction in your heart to go resolve it. Don't avoid it. Start working toward restoration. So let me ask you this. Again, some conflicts, and I didn't really cover this a lot, But Matthew did, and we talked about it last week, that some conflicts aren't resolvable between me and the other person, and therefore I should bring in a third-party mediator to help us get to a place where we're really communicating. But if I've tried to go to that person, and I'm talking about one-on-one issues, right? We talked about a whole host of other ones, but I'm talking about conflict resolution in my personal life. If I can't make it right with the other brother, I should go to either a leader and talk about that and say, listen, it's obvious we aren't able to communicate in a way. Let's go grab Elder Barry or Elder Dave or Elder Brandon or someone that, we, that is not us building our power base, right? So you're not going to go out and grab your friend that's going to make you feel powerful. You're going to go out and grab someone that is going to help you be resolved and restored, And so oftentimes a leader can do that. So some of you in this room tonight may need some intervention. But I'm simply asking you to ask these three questions to yourself. Am I avoiding? And am I avoiding because I'm afraid? And then what am I afraid of? And then I want you to ask the Lord tonight ask Holy Spirit to begin to pray back into that relationship and then the fourth thing I want you to ask Holy Spirit or or ask yourself is what am I doing wrong and what have I done wrong to cause the breach so before you really want to go talk about the other person and there are legitimate things you want to come clean in your own heart and you want to come clean especially of any negative emotions that you have And in those emotions, you want to get rid of that and start coming into forgiveness and make it as the goal of that resolution to be restoration. How can I be restored to my brother or my sister? They hurt me so deeply. I get it. We've all felt that to some level or another. But in that pain and in that hurt, I need to forgive them for my own life. I need to walk in forgiveness so that I don't stay trapped in the past lingering somewhere in the past because I can't let go and forgive because they're not doing what I want to which I believe is going to be the basis of my forgiveness. And so what I want to challenge you with tonight, so Father, Holy Spirit, we just ask right now that you said in Romans as much as it depends upon us that we should live at peace with all men, so I pray that tonight that you would bring into our hearts that relationship that conflict that that all of us are embroiled in that we need to make right. And Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would orchestrate the means and the situation to bring the conflict to the table so that a true collaborative discussion can happen and conflict be resolved. Lord, I pray tonight that in Jesus' name, that you would restore and repair the breaches and relationships that people have. I pray that you would fill every single person in this room with an overwhelming measure of the love of God that drives out every single fear of confrontation in their lives. And I pray that you would fuel such a passion in their hearts of love toward the people that they're in conflict with, or that one person, or those several people that they're in conflict with, and that you would cause them in their hearts to want to restore and repair the relationship. And so, Father, tonight may it not be said of us that we heard words and that we forget what manner of people we are and that all we did was was become a listener without ever being a doer. Lord, I pray that in this room tonight that we would recognize our accountability for hearing this word And, and as much as it depends upon us to go make it right with the other side of that relational breach. And Lord, where there is tragic situations and things that have been devastating and very hurtful in people's lives, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would begin to release the oil of healing in people's hearts right now. And on the other side of the table, on the other side of these conflicts, that you begin to do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, as the great counselor. And that you would begin to lead the other sides of these conflicts in their lives toward resolutions and restorations and reparations of the breaches in relationships. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Now, I want to I say one last statement, and if you've got a couple questions, we'll take them. But the last statement is this. The willingness to trust is immediate. I need to be willing. And where I'm not, I need to check that. But the actual trust happens over time with the right kind of relationships. So I'm not saying that you step in and you immediately trust when you offer forgiveness. Trust really does have to be earned, it's currency. And so, again, I'm gonna make the statement, and I say this quite a bit we trust the behavior, not the apologies. And so, trust is earned when I follow through with what I say I'm gonna do, right? But the willingness to be willing to let go and not make the other person an idol by refusing to allow yourself to trust again hurts you more than it does the other person because you create an idol and an inner vow that you're chained to. The moment you think or say, I will never, you are using your authority illegally. And so this, this evening, I'm not trying to say that we're, you're going to get a Disney ending with unicorns and rainbows every single time. But what I am saying is that you can posture your heart in a way that you live in order and in alignment with the, with the king that you love. And then out of that, we don't let our conflicts and the situations that we can, can't change change. Begin to impact us negatively and become weights that we have to cast aside because we can't run our race with perseverance. Is that good? All right, what questions do we have? Yes, ma'am. Raul, you got a mic? Brandon, you got a mic? You got a phone? Amen. Oh. Thank you, sir. I like those shoes, man. Who was it?
1: So I, I don't know if you already answered it, but you might have not. Well, how do you deal with somebody that maybe the trust issues are there, but it has nothing to really do with you? Um, a lot of people have a lot of trust issues from past relationships yep. or, you know, things have been done and they have kind of built their, you know, stereotypes of, you know, these type of people do this, these type of people do that. So then when you come into that situation, you're kind of like at a loss already because they don't trust you to begin with. Nothing that you have done to breach it, but because of what has been done in the past that has breached that trust by so many people already.
0: Right, so your relationships, and I said this I think week one or week two, the healthiness of your relationships Let me say it this way. Your relationships are only going to be as healthy as the dysfunction that you bring into it. Let me say that another way. You can't be healthy to the degree that you're dysfunctional. So my lack of trust with other people that I bring into the relationship is making the other person pay for what someone else did to me. In other words, someone else is in, in your debt because they did something wrong to you. Therefore, everyone's in your debt. And so how do you handle that? Is that what you're saying? Uh, you go to Kim Weir for inner healing. No, I'm, t- I'm totally kidding. Uh, but what you do do is you understand that all of us need to live an examined life and we need to constantly get free. And this is why I'm going to say to you at the most rudimentary level, the beauty in the body is that people that really love you will help you see what you're blind to. And that this is why if you are a Lone Ranger Christian and you don't really have mature, healthy people in your life, you're never really going to be in a position where people are going to help you through your issues because your lack of trust in your marriage affects every single relationship you have. It's not just your marriage. It's every relationship. And every single one of us in this room tonight, if you have in the the wake of your speedboat riding through the water lots of carnage, the issue probably isn't them. It's probably you. And so one of the things that we have to understand as believers is that we can always measure where we are in our maturity, not by other people, but by the measure of the stature of Christ in our life. And Christ didn't hold grudges. Christ didn't even have trust issues with his Judas. And so what we have to understand in that is I can't control another person, but oftentimes I can use my mistrust to control. And so what I would challenge every believer in this room is to live honestly in touch with your heart and own your issues and do what you need to do to get free. It's really that simple because you don't want to punish the people that want to love you with the trust issues that you brought into a relationship that has nothing to do with the current relationship. That's probably not the best answer you wanted to hear. But again, I can't control anybody and their trust issues, but I can't control myself, and I can work to get free of my own heart so I don't punish everyone else or victimize everyone else by using my lack of trust as a means to control them. Who else? You, oh.
1: Do you have any conflicts that are in avoidance?
0: Am I avoidance? Online? Yes. I would say the big one is an avoidance. It's accommodation. What do you think, honey? You know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, if I, okay, honestly, I probably do go back and forth between avoidance and accommodation. And the reason why is, um, yeah, so I'm going to answer that yes. Why do okay. you ask?
1: I wanted to ask how, you, how do you deal with that situation?
0: Okay. So here's how I approach it. One, the two things that I fall to every single time is a soft answer turns away wrath. So I deal with my own wrath. And then what I'm trying to do with the other person if there's wrath involved is I'm trying to speak to them softly in a way that I'm not causing them wrath. And I can, any of us can do that when we're mad. We can really manipulate a conversation. So in that situation where there's an avoidance there, there's simply an understanding that um, I can love the person for who they are, but the moment that who they are attempts to victimize me, The only way I can deal with that is to avoid Because I'm not called to take your pain Loving you isn't accommodating your bad behavior Loving you is teaching you not to do it by giving you boundaries Is that a a good answer? Or is that, did I answer it? Yes sir Anybody else? Mr. Smith
1: you said that loving you is loving you, something like loving you enough to give you boundaries. Yeah. What if you have righteous boundaries that are considered to be unrighteous boundaries because of the error seen from the other person?
0: Well, again, I would say to you that not everybody and most people don't live by my set of rules, Right. So the best that I can do is help people to understand my set of rules. So my set of rules don't require me to control you in order to feel safe. My set of rules just simply says that I love you and I'll be patient with you. And there's, there's a lot of longevity to that patience, right? So I'm not walking around going, I have a boundary. Nope, you hurt me. You're out of my life. You're dismissed. So I'm not doing that. Because there is a place where as you grow and mature in love, you won't wear your feelings on your shoulders and you can take a lot more. And you don't need something and you're not fearful. And there's all these reasons why you can walk through. Your patience grows up the more your love does. And what I mean by that is there's not some other carnal reason that you're using to do that, which is namely codependence. I need something from you, so I'm willing to take the pain. Or I'm more afraid of being lonely than I am being out of relationship or in relationship with you, so your pain is a lot less worse than being lonely, so therefore I'm going to take the codependence. Uh Uh-oh, that stirred something. Yes, sir.
1: Um, there's There's an old expression, can we agree to disagree? Yeah. And I think in some respects that us seeing other people in love does not preclude the fact that we disagree with them. In terms yeah. of values. Disagree. I love you, but I, I don't see it. I just don't see it your way. And that's, there's nothing bitter, vile, or anything about doing that, I don't think. I mean, we have to have those boundaries of our value systems. I, I believe we have to keep them. There's there's, I have shared this with Derek and some other people. There's a, a term called convicted civility um, that I didn't make it up, so I'm not going to own it. But it was made originally by a Lutheran theologian, and that, what he said was that you can uh, civilly consider other people that you disagree with as children of God that are lovable and have loving natures mm. and still maintain that you disagree with their value system. That's your conviction. You hold a conviction, but you still love the person anyway. That's where it's hard, though, Yeah, because we can't put our own selves out of it.
0: Because you don't really remember things unless it's in an alliteration. So let me give you an alliteration. Love doesn't give you an excuse to dishonor. Or excuse me, disagreement doesn't give you the right to dishonor. Disagreement doesn't give you the right to dishonor. Okay? That's exactly what he said, just a different way. Let me tell you one quick story. I was abused quite a bit when I was growing up. What that abuse did in my own life is it turned me into a victim, and the hallmark characteristics of victims is they have no boundaries. So generally when victimization happens like that, they will continue to get repetitively victimized because they don't have any boundaries that stop people from doing that. So what I did I survived my childhood a lot of the, you know, mostly. But then I went into adult life. I entered into ministry at the age of 20 and been in, you know, gone through lots of different situations in my adult ministry. And what I found out once I finally started getting free uh, at about 2011, I found out that I was one of the most controlling people because I was so afraid of being controlled. I was controlling everybody else so you couldn't control me. And so control in my life and in your life is really the substitute for healthy boundaries. And so when you realize that you're no longer a victim, man, you know the most awesome thing? I'm not even going to lie to you. I sat in front of the mirror and just started practicing saying no, and it felt really good. No. No. Why? Just because no. And so that was a boundary I needed to set because it still feels really good. No. And the reason why was I had no boundaries because I felt like I wasn't loved, so I always had to say yes in order to get love. I was over committing, I wasn't following through with what I said I was gonna do, and even now I have to wrestle through that because sometimes I should be saying no right now when I'm not. And my point in saying that is boundaries are a healthy thing and anyone that would tell you not to have boundaries is uh, Danger, Danger, Will Robinson. You you, you know, you really have to kind of help people understand that if people really love you, they'll respect the boundaries you give them. And uh, now when I learn boundaries, I'm going to tell you this, the the, the person who is working me through inner healing, like it was one week that, you know, we figured out what was going on and I came back and I recognized all the abuse, worked through the anger of that and feeling like a victim. And it wasn't some long drawn out thing. But then the next week she was like, hey, you need to set up boundaries. Victories don't, or victims don't have boundaries. And so what that means is it's okay to say no. You don't have to feel guilty for being right. You don't have to feel guilty for saying no, all that kind of stuff. I don't have to justify why I'm saying no. Right? No is no. No means no, Right? So anyway, in the situation that, it was like a month later, and the, and the counselor says, hey, Derek, remember that discussion we had about boundaries? I'm like, yeah, I'm loving it, saying no a lot. Hey, you need to reel those back in. Like, when I said give boundaries, it, like, it's not a mile-wide personal zone. So, like, reel that thing back in, you know, right? Don't use your boundaries to control everybody. And let's just put them, like, just give yourself a small little circle. You don't have to just keep everybody out of the whole uh, city, you know. So that's what boundaries do. Who else raised their hand? We good? Yes, sir. All right. What's that? Okay.
1: How do you have conflict resolution with somebody who uh, plays the victim?
0: Plays the victim. Number one, you look at on page, what is it, 10? Who is the victim on here? The victim's on here. Go find him or her. And they'll give you some tips on how to deal with the victim. The, they're either going to be, a, I think the victim is a passive aggressive. Those are always the most fun. <laughs> um, so that's going to be the quick way. But you have to understand something about victims. Here's what I do most often. I'm not trying to threaten people. But I'm not going to allow your fear to control what I will or won't say. I'm not gonna allow you to weaponize your emotions to get me not to say something that I should say. So in the victim, I will a lot of times remove their need or attempt to try to remove their need to feel the victim. And the way that you would normally do that is by asking a series of strategic questions. So anytime someone doesn't, they feel like they need to defend, What I'm not going to do is make assertive, aggressive statements to them. What I am going to do is ask a few questions that provoke the heart, and sometimes those are leading questions, and when they are, I'll intellectually own it. I'll say, I'm about to ask you a couple questions, and I'm trying to lead you somewhere. So I don't want them to feel like I'm being underhanded, but I'm going to ask them a series of questions that are meant to provoke the heart, but they don't feel like they have to defend because I'm not attacking them. I'm simply asking questions. So the best way to deal with the victim is to call out the victim and say, you know, you don't have to feel like a victim around me because I'm not trying to assault you. I love you, and that's why we're talking. And in the end, sometimes discussions, one-on-ones, aren't you're, for whatever reason, you're just not going to be able to get through. And that's why I would appeal to a higher authority or I would appeal to someone else and recommend that we go see a counselor or someone that's completely neutral yet mature enough to really hear both sides and lead us to a good conclusion. There is really nothing wrong with seeing counselors. You know that, right? There's nothing wrong with Phil's like, yeah, I made my life on that, or Cliff, sorry. Um, but, but I, I want to encourage you that, that seeking out other people, wise counselors, is a good thing. That's biblical. All of us need that. Man, they say, oh, man, you're the guru. I'm like better than Dr. Phil. Not really. There's times when I need to appeal to other people because I don't always have it. So all of us are at a place in our lives where we can and should appeal to others. We good, Brandon, Are we done? It was one more over here, right? All right, last one. And I'll hang out for a few minutes if you want to ask off the mic. Okay, yep. so
1: my question is, I know that you said love doesn't tolerate, but how do I make sense of that? Like, in Ephesians 4, 1-2, to 2, when Paul talks about showing tolerance for one another in love, like, what is the fine line of tolerance in those two verses
0: Okay, well, I'm going to make an appeal to there and say that that's a translation, a word. For, so if you actually look up the word tolerance, the way I define that is, and we don't even have to get stuck on the word. What I'm saying is that anytime I recognize something is not right and it's legitimately not right and I'm not willing to challenge the not right, that's not healthy. So what I'm saying is I can't control you, but the, usually the reason why I'm tolerating, you know, in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Revelation, what was it, two or three? Uh, you tolerated Jezebel, and your toleration of Jezebel uh, essentially caused her to lead other people into immorality. So our toleration, and what I mean by tolerate, is being willing, and unwilling to challenge what it is I'm fearful to tolerate, then that's generally not going to be a good thing and the reason why is again and and it's it's amazing every single time it's it's interesting when you have these discussions christians will usually fall on a lot of them will fall and err to the side that i should take your pain because i'm showing you love by taking your pain and i should be willing to take your pain uh, because i want to win you over to christ but you understand and, and, and I'm not going to say that this and I'll 100% never do that, but I'm talking about in your marriage and in your relationships, you shouldn't take the pain. Because you are, you are essentially, what you're doing is cooperating and telling the other person that their behavior is okay. So again, at any point in, when, when you're being mistreated, love is patient. Yes, they're working through damage. They're working through pain. But what I'm saying to that is that still doesn't mean I shouldn't challenge it.